grounding, I think when done well, can really provide great shared mental model status. This is Shafali, and you're listening to the Peds Admit Podcast. Alice, we are so hashtag blessed today to be sitting down with the one and only Dr. Jordan Tyrus. We are talking about three rounding. This is Most high yield. I wish I wish I had had this as a medical student, as an intern. Honestly, right now it's super helpful. It's every stage of residency. I feel like there's a new challenge when it comes to pre rounding and rounding. Right? I agree. A lot of things I learned in here that I hadn't really incorporated into my framework of how the day works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so we're just lucky to be sitting down with her. She is a former children's resident, current children's hospitalist fellow. And she was my senior resident July of my intern year. Amazing. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. <laughs> um, she's going to be walking us through the nuts and bolts of pre-rounding and rounding really at every stage. So starting from the intern's perspective all the way through her role right now as a fellow. So without further ado, Dr. Tyrus. Oh, what a lovely, lovely introduction. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Very excited. Just to start off, what do you see as the point of, of both pre-rounding and rounding in general? Uh, well, it's definitely changed. I think now when I see it and I look at rounding, I think when done well, it can really provide great shared mental model status, which I think is the big buzzword, right? And then like really good communication with family. So if you do rounding the way that it should be done, everyone's present, family, ancillary staff, medical team, and it's done completely, then you can have a shared plan that really sets the tone for the day. And pre-rounding is like the setup for that. So everybody at every level does their own kind of pre-rounding, but no matter who's doing it and when, pre-rounding should set up and provide all the information to make then that successful rounding process happen. I think as an intern, when I started, it felt like public speaking and a performance that I never wanted to participate in. Um, but as, as I've grown, um, it it can be a lot more impactful than than just me talking into a room filled with people that I don't know if they're listening to me or not. It remains unclear. <laughs> Definitely relatable. Yeah. But what I'm hearing is everybody gets their information up front with pre-rounding and then on rounds discuss that information and make the plan for the day. Yeah. And you can fact check, right? Yeah, like was the, was the information I saw real? It was the plan that I wanted to make right. sound or not. Right. Absolutely. I think the, the highlight of what you just said was shared mental model, which is something that we're always striving for. Back to intern year. <laughs> when it felt like Bring me back. <laughs> what should their approach to pre-rounding be? I'm smiling because I remember when I used to pre-round, I used to feel like Every morning was a race that I just didn't know if I was going to finish it or not yeah. and how that finish would look. I think the most important thing about pre-rounding as an intern is having structure. But it really, I mean, it matters that all the pieces are there, but what the structure looks like is less important as long as there's some form of routine and some level of internalization of data yeah. that happens. So I think as an intern, figuring out what works for you, having that flow, and then just repeating that day after day, no matter how many patients you have and whether it's a busy day or not, and just making sure that you can follow those steps. So you're an intern, you walk in, you've got two to five patients. Mm -hmm. This is a dream day. Tell me more. How do I get this job? Okay, so we want to walk through exactly what you do step by step. So you start with sign out. You're listening to your team sign out. Do you do anything during sign out to guide your pre-rounding process? Um, In a dream world, I would write 
in my like overnight events, HPI type section, anything that happened that is new that I want to report out on grounds that doesn't fit somewhere else in like a results or vital science section. In reality, that almost never happened because I couldn't type fast enough. Mm -hmm. But I think there were definitely times, maybe on like lower census days, where I could do that. And then the other thing I always did, maybe a little even before pre-rounds, was I would clear clipboards, not really internalizing anything that I looked at, just clearing it so that for the rest of the day I knew when something new would pop up. That's really all I could manage during sign out. Okay. Clarifying questions, et cetera. So all of your clipboards are cleared. You're ready to refresh your Cerner and see the new lab results that pop up while you're pre-rounding. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did you start by examining your patients or did you go through all the charts and then examine your patients? Okay, again, in a dream world, I would examine all my patients first. But I just don't think that's... I don't know that that's the best move. I think that's the most efficient way to pre-round is to see your patients first. But I think when you're already sitting and then you get sign out, and your health record is open, and you're already in the chart, it's hard to stop that process, step away, go see the patients, and then come back. Mm. So oftentimes, it did not work that way for me. I would say the times that I made sure I saw patients first was on busy, capped days. So either a weekend where I was capped with patients or weekend or weekdays, because I knew that I could not do notes and pre-round and then see everybody. So I wanted to see everyone, make sure I had an exam that could inform some decision-making and then I pre-rounded what I could in between that time and when it was time to round. Would that change if you had certain watcher patients? I think if I had watcher patients that were active, so they're brand new, they did something overnight that was new, they're newly sick, or infrequently, but sometimes you would get a sign-out team that wants you to see the patient with them to kind of compare exams. Those are the ones that I would see immediately. Mm-hmm. If it was someone who's been sick but stably sick, someone who is behaving as we would expect them to behave and there's not a new acute concern, then I would feel comfortable doing my normal routine and then seeing them. If a nurse calls me with literally anything, usually during pre-rounding, then I just go because it's a great opportunity to see the nurse and the patient at the same time. So I capitalize on that. Those are really the only few times that it would flip my process. What is your personal order for looking through a chart? And keeping in mind, disclaimer, that there are many um, EMRs and we have but one of them. So that would probably change your process. But but one version of of one of Of them. them. (laughs) My process is pretty boring and it follows the health record tabs on the outside. Um, And so globally, remembering back to intern year, I would open my note if it wasn't already open. And then I would populate whatever I needed to into those overnight events if I hadn't gotten to it during sign out. And then everything else is just basically fact-checking. So I never believed what data was pulled into like the vital signs section. So I would always go and trend vital signs. And I would always forget that in ours, the respiratory support is at the top. So I would look at the vital signs and go back up to the top for respiratory yes. support. And sideways shuffle into new <laughs> results. Sideways shuffle into radiology, making sure, even if I didn't think there was anything there, just making sure there was nothing new there. Mm -hmm. And then moving down into ins and outs, really just like a global look, like did they eat anything if they should have been? (laughs) Did they throw up if they had been throwing up? Did they pee something that resembles what they're supposed to pee? Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes check the medication summary just Mm -hmm. to see. And that's 
tailored, like depending on like what patients are here for, but just eyeballing that and making sure that anything they were given is something that I thought they should have received. And I followed that routine pretty much always. Um, so kind of, I mean, you've already kind of hit on a few things, which is ideally, if you are not capped and your census isn't crazy, it helps to sort of inform your examination of the patient by going to the chart, which is, a, I think, a great point. And then how do you, I guess... How do you integrate all the information you gather into the progress notes? So I think usually what I would end up doing is, I think there's probably one point where I was like writing data down as I was pre-rounding and then moving it back into the chart, which was probably more time inefficient, but for my mind made more sense. So I would pre-round and get all my data, jot anything on my paper handoff that was that like I needed to talk about. And I did this for like the IC, moving out of hospice a little bit, but into the ICUs where it's high acuity, high volume. I always would write stuff down that I needed to talk about and any ideas that I had on the paper next to the patient so that I didn't need to find myself in the note. And then I would go back after each section. So like after vital signs, write anything that I needed to speak about after results, make sure that that result was in the chart, ins and outs, medications, etc. And I populate those as I do each one usually. So it's, it is not the best for fast flow, but it's the best for me for making sure I included everything I needed to talk about on round. So there's like way too much data to remember and regurgitate on the fly. So I needed to kind of write it in two spots. So I kind of ended up doing the note that way. And then one quick point is that I think I also found it helpful if the census allowed to chart check first, because I found that when I went into the rooms first, parents always had questions and it was fine to defer it, but I just felt better if I knew the answers Mm -hmm. to what they wanted. So that is the one plus to chart checking and pre-rounding first and then seeing your families is so that you could then answer the questions for the families who are awake and kind of already ready to go. You just can't do that if you don't have all the answers, if you're seeing them first. So everything from can they go home today, <laughs> you have their eyes and nose, you have the respiratory rate, what did their morning lab show you were able to yeah. maybe set yourself up to answer. And I think it's most important probably for those who have like pending labs, the ones mm-hmm. who are waiting for lab results. Everyone always wants to know what they are and it's yeah. nice to have the numbers to, in addition to saying, it's great (laughs) to actually have the number in front of you. Are there certain things, I guess, any big categories you can think of in terms of tailoring your pre-rounding process to the patient's presentation or disease process? Are there Um, ways to categorize that? There are things that I will pay more attention to and kind of go into more detail. Uh So for people who are in pain and getting pain meds, I spend a lot of time finding out how much of each, like as needed pain medication did they need because it helps me figure out if they're getting better or worse. Same thing for the respiratory kids, like croupy kids that need racepi, like how often did they need it overnight? I'll count that out and look and I'll do like interval times. Like did they need it with less frequency as the night went on or not? And then if they're to thrive kids who come in and you need to characterize PO mm-hmm. or any other child that you would be wondering, like kids that come out of the ICU that are like working on PO, those kids, I would look at their in like more detail. So like how many ounces, what percentage, what's the goal, where are we going and how do we get here? Um, <laughs> those types of things. That's what I would spend more time on. And then somewhere in there is like a dream that I would find all the consult notes that I've been waiting uh, on the other yes. day. <laughs> That does not happen, but sometimes if a discharge or a plan I knew was dependent on this one consult, <laughs> then I would dig for it and I would find it and I would look and see what they had written there. But that was, those opportunities were far and few between, just I, to be honest. Yeah. 
<laughs> hard to get through all of them. The end, <laughs> right? Yeah. It took me forever to remember to check pain meds. That's like one of those yes. things that just. And it seemed like every one of my seniors was paying attention to it, and I would be like realize that around. <laughs> and, oh, maybe I should have looked at this. Maybe I should figure that. So it's a good tip. So I feel like we've covered our bases in terms of intern year pre rounding from a smaller census to a larger census, mm-hmm. transitioning more to a senior resident role, especially if when you're seniorring for the first time in the second year. And say you have a typical census, so 10 to 14 patients. What would you change in your pre rounding process? Well, you have more time. <laughs> notes, not writing notes is a beautiful gift of time. So the pre-rounding should actually stay the same because in the senior role, you are all people. You are overseeing, you're managing, and you're leading, but you also are the safety net and the double check for your interns. Because as much as I wanted to check all of these things, kind of what you just pointed out, there's just so much data and at a certain level... As an intern, you're just like collecting and gathering data and not sure how to interpret it yet, right? So there were times that things get missed, certainly with me when I would pre-round and I would report something that I thought was fine but wasn't or something that I had missed because I thought it was normal and it wasn't. And so the senior is really there to say, here's all the information that you got and then here's how to interpret that. So you have extra time, but you use all of your extra time. So the first step as a senior that I did differently was I would check orders first, which I think is what someone told me and then what I tell everybody that's like a new senior, it's like the first new thing. So what are your orders and do they match what you were told? Do they match for somebody that should be on the floor? Is there anything left over that shouldn't be there if they came from a different place, like the ICU or whatnot? And then really looking at orders gives you a really good sense of what your patient is actually doing compared to what you heard in sign out or what you were told by the admitting team or or whatever. And then much of my other pre-rounding is the same. So still going through all of the data in like pretty much that same order, but that becomes a lot more efficient because you're looking at trends now, usually as a senior, and you are looking at like, you know, if there were results, this is specifically what I'm looking for from a result, you know what to expect. So it drives a lot of your data gathering to be quicker and more efficient. Then you have time to find consult notes or random therapy recommendations and and all those notes that are there. And you don't know why, but they are. And then sometimes on the floors, you'll get nursing notes, which are these beautiful gifts of like succinct summaries of what happened on shifts. Those are great. And so I would find those. I would say primarily in the ICUs is where they exist. (laughs) No, but they're wonderful. They are. Um, And they just cut to the chase. Right? It's like bullet points. (laughs) This is what happened. This is what you need to know. And then you're like, this is what I need to know. (laughs) This is true. This is excellent. And that's really it. I think sometimes as a senior, you end up with extra time that you can then use to read, which is like a very nice thing to do in the morning and read and make your plan and figure out answers to questions that your interns might have or families might have so that you can be ready to either teach your team or to counsel families. Mm -hmm. So You do have more time because you're not writing notes, but you fill that time because your scope is broader because you have more patience and more responsibility. I'm just curious, do you clean up orders for your interns or do you then push things along and allow them to take that opportunity? Great question. I definitely would early as a senior. Um, I seniored really early in the year. So um, it was a time, it was like during like the learning curve time. Mm-hmm. So I would remind and allow my interns to clean up their own orders. Mm-hmm. And I gave a fair amount of time, like lengthwise to do that mm-hmm. in my current role as fellow. And now we're like midway through the year. 
if I happen upon things that need to be cleaned up, then I will just do it and I will notify the team. Mm -hmm. Because at this point, I think everybody has learned the art of looking at orders and cleaning them up. Whereas like in the beginning of the year, that's still a skill to learn, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's only this in the middle of winter. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. In this time period. Um, and I think also it matters for like time, like sensitivity of things. So mm-hmm. if someone is on like a very frequent respiratory, like a Q2, I'll be they need to be on Q4. That matters. Take that out and then yeah. let your team know. But other things that are less time sensitive that people need to practice looking through and deleting or taking out, those can make. How do you think about which kids you want to go examine when you're this year? Did you only the respiratory watchers that were here? If you're working with an acting intern, you would see those kids. Mm-hmm. Sort of how often did you need to? It's pretty infrequent. It's stylistic also. So I have had co-residents that were seniors who wanted to see more kids than just the watchers and the sick kids. I think that there were others who, who really only saw the kids that absolutely needed to be seen. And I tried to see the kids that really just needed to be seen. So the respiratory kids who I thought we could make changes on their plans on rounds that I wanted to see. The kids who were watchers, but not stable watchers, the kids who like were actively doing something, um, those kids I would see early. If they were a watcher that I knew about and I already knew, then I would see them before rounds, but at the end of my pre-rounding. Kids that were sick, I saw early. Kids that had a weird story that I thought didn't really make sense or that made me nervous. Maybe they weren't labeled as a watcher or like doing anything acute, but I would meet them earlier on just to make sure that I knew what we were going to be talking about. And then I don't know that I ever worked with an AI where I had to follow their patients. I think maybe once or twice. But then I would see them to, again towards like the end. So I'd pre-round first and still kind of do my own plan. Kids that I would see early, early on would be the kids that were actively sick or the kids that I was confused about that I needed to like see and make sure they made sense. And how has this workflow tilted as you've moved from being a senior resident to being a fellow? So now still same situation, but you have your own senior resident. You have your own, your own intern sort of that you're supervising also. You know, I hear my workflow is really supposed to change, and I find that that is an evolution. I am still on. Um, so I would say I intentionally try to adjust my workflow now to give my team more autonomy. So just like where I wouldn't see every kid or only the kids that I was worried about, that would be, as a senior, that's to have my interns build autonomy, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a skill in seeing someone by yourself and knowing nobody else is seeing them and Mm -hmm. figuring out, do I need to notify somebody or not? And that is like a gift of learning that you give when you don't see everybody on rounds. Mm -hmm. So same thing in the the fellow role as pre-rounding. I still look at almost everything, (laughs) but I do it much more efficiently than I did three or four years ago. And I don't really see anybody before rounds. And I expect that whoever I'm working with is going to let me know if they're worried. And we have like the privilege of working with really phenomenal residents who are really great about escalating and, and managing. So if I was seeing everybody in the morning, before the senior had a chance to see people, they wouldn't have the opportunity to make those on-the-fly management skills because somebody else would be doing it. So my pre-rounding is pretty much the same. I look at data, but I look at targeted data. So what is the child here for and what do I need to know? What will keep them here or not keep them here? And then what are like the details really related to, to why they're here? So if they're infectious and they've had fever, do they still have fever? If they're failure to thrive, what's their weight and what are they eating? So it's not really just this wide gathering of data that I'm doing or wide scope of finding everything, but I'm really just looking for 
This is why they're here. This is what I need to know. What's the need to know information? And then I expect that when we go on rounds that I'm informed of anything that falls outside of that. And I have time in the morning so I can really delve into all of those notes that I need to know about. And I can peek at the intern sign out if I'm confused about something that happened overnight or I can make teaching points and topics, things that I think are a little bit different than the things that the senior will teach about, find articles that will talk about new guidelines or ways that we do things that will answer most of the questions that we have, but give an article that people can reference, which I think is helpful. So those things usually fill my pre-rounding time as opposed to the wide hunting of all of the data that used to exist. Just a quick foray into the ICUs. Any pearls for second and third year residents when they're pre-rounding there? Yes. In the ICU, it is absolutely imperative that you leave the room as soon as you are done sign out and you see all of your kids because all of your nurses from overnight will be there and they will tell you everything that you need to know. And that was a gift given to me by Dr. Pierre. That is something that I did that I share with every single person because it like cuts pre-rounding time in half. Yeah. And to look at all of your own chest x-rays before radiology rounds so that you can figure out if you can read them or not, and then you can cross-check. And I think you should mostly have time to do those two things. <laughs> so prioritizing your physical exam during sort of the nursing sign-out, and that way you get everything that's been going on with that kid overnight, even if it's not documented. Yeah, and you know, with the NICU, those kids, I would stop and kind of powwow with their nurses ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And if they were not ready to be examined, if they were like asleep and tucked away and papoosed yeah. in their little arena, then I would see them some point later in the afternoon with the nurse. I'd just ask when a good time would be. Mm -hmm. And then usually there's like a very nice lull in the afternoon. I would kind of go round. Because then you get to meet everybody, which is the single key to success in either ICU. Well, we can touch on as as you're an intern, you're presenting, you've gone from having just a couple patients that you know really well to presenting the 10 to 14 patients in a morning. Any public speaking, any presenting <laughs> tips that you'd like to share with interns specifically? That's a great question. Things that I do that have worked for me. So I'm someone that hates public speaking. Things like this make me nervous. And so I feel like when I entered intern year, I was like, why am I on a stage at all times? <laughs> Nobody wants to listen to me. I don't want to listen to me. I want this to end. And so I think, so we talk about family-centered rounds, like this is a time to talk to families. And then invariably at some point, family-centered rounds becomes medical discussions in front of families, which mm -hmm. is not ideal and also stressful. Yeah. I think for, especially for the hospitalist teams, when you're an intern and you're presenting, if you could align yourself with the child or the parent, and usually it's going to be the parent because the child is pretty young, and you just talk to them like it's a conversation, you will, one, understand what is happening with the patient because you're going to use language that is not medical jargon. And sometimes we get lost in the jargon and then we don't really know what's happening. And then you get fact-checked as you talk. So there's been plenty of times where I've presented to the family and I've been like, and then they had a fever on this day. Like they actually didn't have a fever on that day. And they also didn't have a fever on this day. We're here because they're throwing up. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, let me reincorporate this into my assessment. And so I think if you can focus on talking with families, you'll lose the public speaking part of it because you'll just be focused on one person. And then you'll end up understanding what is happening, I think, a little bit easier than when you kind of orate the entire story at the level of whomever with all medical context. I feel like a, the frequent feedback that we give to most interns is be confident in your plans and, you know, propose, propose plans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have any tips for helping interns become more confident or, or presented yeah. more confidently? How to strike the balance between not saying some, 
the parent something that you will not do yes. today. Ultimately, <laughs> we're going to get a chest X-ray. No, we're not. That's awkward. <laughs> it is. But I've certainly, I've certainly done it before. Yeah. And being confident in your assessment, your plan, as in, in that level on a team. Yeah. So you just have to be able to back up what your plan is. So most times what happens is, uh, I think my interpretation of the events is that you will have an intern present a plan that they inherit. So they inherit this plan from overnight or from another team. The admitting team overnight admits this kid, they have this plan, they give it to you guys and sign out. The intern hears it and they present that plan on rounds. But that's just an inherited plan. It's not based on their own exam, their own data, their own talking with the parents. So if you have a plan that you want to do based on reviewing vital signs and labs and your exam this morning, you present that plan with your rationale, then it becomes a teaching point. Then it's not a, I want to do this chest x-ray. Absolutely not. We're never doing that today. (laughs) It's like, I want to do this chest x-ray because I think that I heard crackles on the right side, which is different from my exam from yesterday. And they're still having fever. So I don't think this is just a viral illness. I think that there might be a, a pneumonia. Which I know is a clinical diagnosis, but I still want to cover blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, so that is something that doesn't become, yes, it is, no, it's not. That is, oh, okay, let's all listen. And then everyone listens. So even if you end up not getting the chest x-ray, there's no back and forth. There's just, oh, here's what I heard on this exam. Come listen again. And it becomes this like teaching session rather than I feel like two different plans are happening. And I find that families are okay with that. So I think that it's confusing when one person presents a plan and then you have that awkward moment of, we'll get back to that in a minute. We're absolutely not going to do that. And then, some, <laughs> but we're going to keep the order. And then we keep the order and then somebody else speaks. Mm-hmm. Instead, when you have somebody say, I think I want to do this based on this and this. And then you have other more senior members say, oh, that's actually not what I heard. This is what I heard. Let's listen again. This is what I think we should do. And maybe we'll get the chest x-ray if things evolve later. That's something easier, I think, for families to understand in terms of like context. And that is how I would encourage the intern to present their plan. So why do you want to do this? And if there's not really a why and there's not a basis, then pose it like a question. So if you're not sure you want to do it, say, I heard that there is some concern that they might want to get this image, but I don't really think we need it based on this, this, and this. What was everybody else thinking? So if you can back it up, then you can be confident. I want to circle back to one more pre-rounding thing. When you're running your list, you're getting all of your data, how do you mm-hmm. assess and write down eyes and nose into the chart? <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's really only certain things that people care about with eyes and nose. And it is patient-dependent, but overall, it is not everything that's in the chart. So when you're in a hospital service, not like a primary GI or intestinal rehab service. So a hospital service where most kids are eating or if they are getting fed through some form of a tube, it is easily measurable. There's a few things you need to know. So if you have a child who is eating and they're eating as expected, then you just need to say, ate well. That's what I write on my my note when I'm looking. I'm like, okay, cool. They ate three meals. Great. I really probably just do it like a check. And then I do urine output calculated cc's per kilo per day, knowing in my mind if that's in the context of receiving extra fluids or all by themselves. And then I usually just look to see if they stooled any time that is somewhat recent. And that is the extent of what I write on my paper and what I report. That changes. So if somebody is working on peeling, but they're also getting fluids, then I look a little bit closer at like how much do I think they ate in the context of what they should have eaten. Was it like one meal? But it was dinner time. If they only ate dinner, but they hadn't eaten earlier, then I say, oh, they ate more as the day went on. That's nice. So more in PM. Same thing with urine, same thing with stool. If it's a child who's doing like PO and NG feeds, then I write down percentage PO and percentage NG. And then I compare that to the day prior. So I can say, are we getting closer or are we not? And then usually for people who are just on 
IV fluids who are not getting any, like they're not peeling anything or people who are like infrequently will have people on TPN, then I'll just say like they're getting everything from, from their fluids. So I'll be like on TPN, et cetera, on IV fluids. And then I'll like specify out again, they're like urine output in their stool. So yeah. you're using urine output in mLs per kilo per hour to measure your hydration. Yes. Other things like total in, total out, net positive, net negative. Typical hospitalist, yeah. bread and butter patient, all of the information that's in the chart, we can kind of distill it down to. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it doesn't impart knowledge to say total in and total out without it being separated down further. And so it's not needed because you're going to go through the other components of it. Balance is a good one that I often don't think of. Balance is good to note if it's wildly off. Mm-hmm. Are you wildly negative or wildly positive? Mm-hmm. And then you have to contextualize that. Like, do I think the data in the chart is correct and accurately reflects what the patient's been getting. So do I trust the super positive or super net negative or not? That one's a good one to note. And then in the ICUs, you're right, it's a totally different story. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be focusing much more on total volume in mm-hmm. and how much do you want the patient to get for their weight per day? Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't usually focus on that too much once they're out on the floor. Mm-hmm. Usually they're eating somewhat regularly right. or they're on fluids for a really short period of time mm-hmm. and they're not intubated. So you don't have to worry about kind of fluid overload as much, but that is where it'll become more important. And then the only other thing it's for like the failure to thrive kids or the kids that are working on feeding, you do kind of want to get into calories per kilo per day. Occasionally you want to make sure that you're like gaining weight or if you're not, why am I not? How many calories are they getting per day? I think those are the only other caveats. Any strategies for senior residents to like effectively lead rounds? Own the role. You got to own the role because there are so many people in the room And parents are so confused about who everybody is, even parents who've been here for days. So I think seniors should wear the white coat because not everybody else will. Like when I'm on service as a fellow and usually the attendings that I work with, we will wear the white coats. There's just something about it. I know we don't wear them usually here, but there's something about like being in a senior role and wearing it on the hospital service that helps parents identify who you are. So I think as a senior, you should wear it because it helps you feel like you're slipping into your role a little bit. And you should always be the first person in the room. You should always stand and kind of align yourself right with the parent because if you're with the parent and the intern is presenting to the parent and the intern is presenting to you, they're not lost in the attending. They're not lost by me, the extra fellows in the room, (laughs) and we can kind of hang out and just listen. And so that's kind of how I would help a senior position themselves to lead. So you're positioned well, and then you just orchestrate rounds, right? So you introduce who's going to speak, who's going to speak next. You ask for opinions from your ancillary staff, from your nursing staff, et cetera. And then you invite extra opinions after you've given your plan as the plan from the attending and from the fellow. People are always going to modify plans. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But usually, again, if you can back it up based on your exam and your data, you can give your plan as a senior pretty confidently. Mm -hmm. And then it should just be minor tweaks, if anything at all, from the fellow and the, the attending. Do you have a way that you sort of ask for the intern presentation and say, okay, nursing concerns, okay, if, if you pharmacy concerns, things like that? Yeah, so that's usually, I think, the best ways that I've seen it done where it's most cohesive. Um, so the intern, so whoever does the primary presentation, student or intern. I think it's important if a student presents not to lose the intern role because sometimes the interns, if they're more soft-spoken or quiet, will not just jump in. Um, so then as the senior saying, okay, now will you please give kind of your edits or additional concerns, anything that was missed. And then invite nursing staff. Sometimes social work is there. Sometimes the charge nurse is there if the bedside isn't there. Respiratory, pharmacy. And then make sure everybody has their piece to say. And then I think at that point, then the senior can give their plan. 
with everyone's sometimes respiratory therapist is like this is all wrong and i think that we should be we should have been spaced like a couple hours ago and then you're like okay great now i also want to space <laughs> sounds wonderful um or the nurse says actually we've been having a terrible time with this IV, and we've missed three hours of IV fluids you're like we're not going to test this now we're going to test this later um and so using all that information to make your plan as a senior and then ending with the fellow and the attending whoever's on to kind of tweak at the end because they should be right at the end before you guys leave the room. Do you incorporate summarizing the plan before you guys leave routinely into a presentation? And if so, who should be the one to do it? Okay. This is a good question. I think summarizing is great because um, rounding can seem endless. And for families, I can't imagine how endless endless feels. So I think that it can be the senior or it can be the intern. If you have an intern that's confident, who's comfortable, like kind of taking that role, I think it is fine to be the intern. If you do not, then I think someone should, and that someone should probably then be the senior and it should just be wrapped up. So you have that like moment where people trail and there's awkward pause. And then you say, okay, so for today, we're going to do boom, boom, boom. Thank you. We'll be back later. And I always like to end because people are like, and now we're done and we're leaving. And I like to end and say, so we'll be back, check on this or this to the family. So the family knows what they're doing or the child knows that I have to drink 30 ounces of water by X period of time so I can leave this place. So you give them specific goals mm-hmm. at the same time you're kind of cueing the rest of your team of this is what we're doing today. Do you have ways to move things along if things do start to run long on rounds? Is there a way to do that well? I have not found it yet. <laughs> I'm also pretty good at just letting things go on and seeing where they lead. <laughs> and unless they go to a place where I don't think we can recover... I will just kind of let them trail on. So I let things go on a little bit longer than at times they should. But that's because I think that there's learning in there. Like I think in my current role as the fellow, step in on a medical student presentation that's just long and kind of getting lost. Then I took that teaching point from the intern and the senior. I think there's a good way to do it to kind of pause and introduce the intern to speak or pause and introduce the, the senior but I don't know that there's a great way. I think that if I can signal to the senior at some point, like it's been 10 minutes and we're still not through this patient, then that's great. But I don't have a good way to fully interrupt somebody without confusing the flow yet. That's yeah. something I'm still working on. The priority is to be polite and to make sure everyone on right. the team gets to contribute. Yeah, but sometimes I think we go overboard on that. And there is definitely room to like teach and shorten while still getting at the polite part. I think I'm still overly sensitive for everybody, like on everyone else's behalf. And so sometimes I'm like, I probably could have cut in there, but uh, I didn't. All right, let's see where we go. (laughs) And then if we start to go somewhere that I'm like, oh, we're not going there today, then I'll say, I don't think we need to talk about that right now. Let me go back to this. And then I will, I will jump in and I'm not as worried about nerves and such. One other question. There are some times when it typically ends up being more of a medical student thing where they might start going down a path that could be distressing to the patient or family or completely lead you astray. So specifically, I'm thinking about discussing like a, a potential cancer diagnosis on a differential for a patient who that's not on your differential and really shouldn't be. What is an effective way to shut that down? Okay, great point. So I think a lot of times these come up because people will go on up to date or they'll go on Isabel or they'll read whatever the note was from last night and they'll find a differential and it really will just be a list of diagnoses and there will not be an order to them in terms of like most to least likely and there really won't be a rationale. And that is, I think, where you can jump in. So if you have a student that says the patient is here with a headache, 
and everyone is pretty cons- like convinced that it's migraine or everyone is pretty convinced that it's, I hope that no one would come here with attention headache, but is attention headache. But for some reason, someone put brain tumor on the differential. Then I think as soon as it's mentioned and everyone perks up, because usually the room collectively is like, we don't think that's what's going on. Then you can kind of jump in and say, so just walk me through the thing that you think is most likely and why. And why do we think it's not related to this tumor at all? Or say, you know, you can even just start with what, what do you think is most likely and why? And then you can kind of jump in as the senior and say, right. And so because there was no abnormality on the exam whatsoever, because imaging was done and was completely negative or because of other gait is completely normal. We definitely don't think that there's anything consistent with intracranial tumor or, or something like that. And then you use that as your teaching moment to the student. You use that as your teaching point, but with the um, energy and determination with which you give that little teaching point, you're also saying to the family, like, that is not a concern that we have, nor did we have at any point once we got to know your child. And so you kind of do two things at once. Mm-hmm. I think it's the best way to do that. So I find sometimes if they do bring it up with reasoning, usually they're like, and lower on the list is malignancy or cancer because they don't have this, this, and this. And then you're like, right, but we do not think that that's what's going on right now. And they're like, right, we don't think that's what's going on. You kind of like also can tease it out that way if it comes up anyway. All right. So any other common hospitalist right out the gate intern pitfalls you see and you want to mention that we haven't yet discussed? I don't know how to summarize this succinctly, but I think as an intern, it's so jarring to go from student to doctor and to like figure out what that role means and how to balance doing all of the documentation work and also figuring out how to do all the patient care work. Like how do you do both in the day? Sometimes that can be difficult and overwhelming. But I would say prioritizing the patient first always. So if you have X number of discharges to do or you are trying to coordinate this business and you get a call from a nurse that a patient needs to be evaluated, like that should not be, it will be stressful, but it should not be stressful. The patient evaluation should always be first. And if you needed help getting like documentation things or care coordination things together, then that's what your senior is there for. So you should take every single opportunity ever to see and evaluate patients and don't defer that to the senior. Because I think I know that there were times when I would work with seniors who would be like, okay, you do all the documentation and I'll do all the patient care. And I'd be like, why am I here? What is my story? <laughs> what, what is happening? And so I really think it's important because a lot of times interns will get these calls and they'll say, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure. And that's totally fine. But first, like totally just figure out, is this someone I need to see right now or not? Because that's the, that's a skill. Yeah. And when I do see them, do I need my senior to be here right now? Or can I try out like rationalizing a plan and then figuring that out? And th- and those two things should be most important because every single other person on the team can help with documentation and can help with orders and can help with care coordination and all that kind of stuff. Thank you so much again for sitting down with us. As our closing question, we'd love to ask either one thing that you've learned recently that you think is interesting, can't get out of your head, or your favorite thing about being a hospitalist fellow. That's an easy one. My favorite thing about being a hospitalist fellow is time. And I, <laughs> I have time now to breathe, to enjoy patients and enjoy kids and to read. Like I didn't think I was someone that liked to read. Now I get to read because I get to learn. Um, so time makes all the difference. And you guys will have time so soon. So excited. <laughs> and it will be so nice. <laughs> we love hearing that. Thank you so much. Thank you. What an interesting episode. Yeah, just jam-packed full of 
outstanding information to take forward. <laughs> really, really almost embarrassed about how much I learned from this episode. Absolutely. Maybe we should have known more of that by now, but we got it today. <laughs> we got it today. So Shabbat, how is this, this going to change your practice? I, I think what I learned from today is that there is definitely a way to organize and orchestrate rounds effectively as the team leader, especially as we progress into our senior year of residency, mm-hmm. making sure that everybody on the team is heard and making sure that there is a clear, you know, shared mental model at the end of each presentation before we step away from that patient and move on to the next one. How about you? Well, I agree with that, sort of the systematic nursing, pharmacy, med student, resident, whatever you can do to keep things flowing. I also am looking forward to moving towards the PICU and the NICU and successfully aligning myself with the nursing assessment as as well. Mm -hmm. I think that that's got to be the safest thing for the patient, the best way to get a good plan for rounds. Yeah, 100% agree. We are just waiting to hear from you. So (laughs) any thought you have, you can reach out anytime. Pedsadmit at gmail.com. We are refreshing. (laughs) (laughs) And our (laughs) inbox is empty. Our (laughs) inbox is empty. So help us out with that. Again, thank you for listening and see you next time. 